Hello and welcome to Sheridan Worldwide's podcast, Brilliance Realised. And with this episode, we have our eyes firmly fixed on the future of work. My name is Catherine Delapore. I'm a coach, a digital anthropologist, and I work at the intersection of culture, technology and data. Today, our topic for discussion is the future ready organisation is emotionally intelligent. And we're going to consider why inclusion matters and the impact of human and machine on creating inclusive teams and culture. Joining me to think about inclusion through the lens of data, privacy and technology are two very special guests. Vivian Arts OBE is Chief Privacy Officer at the London Stock Exchange Group. She is former president of the WIBF and now sits on their advisory board. She is also chair of the IRSG Data Workstream and vice chair of the IAPP. And she is passionate about DNI. Welcome, Vivian. Hi, Catherine. Keith Williams is director of KMW3 Limited. Keith consults with global clients across digital transformation, employee experience, and he knows a thing or two about how to train your chatbot in the art of conversation. He is ex-HR technology director at Unilever and previously a professional musician and art gallery owner. A very warm welcome to Keith. Yeah, thanks. Let's start, if we may, with a definition of inclusion. And I rather like this one. Inclusion is not a matter of political correctness. It is the key to growth and that from Jesse Jackson. Vivian, if I can come to you first, how do you like to think about inclusion? Oh, thanks, Catherine. It's an interesting one, isn't it? What does it mean to be inclusive, to demonstrate inclusive behaviours and so on? The definition I really like is actually the difference between diversity and inclusion, because we often club those two together. Um, Diversity is what we look like, and inclusion is what we feel like. And I quite like that dichotomy because it brings diversity and inclusion together. And it also helps us to be creative about what we actually want inclusion to mean for us and for our organization as well, because it is, you know, what we feel like. And, you know, is that a feeling of belonging or is that a different type of feeling? That's the inclusion element. Um, And we have the opportunity to articulate that to reflect the culture and norms of wherever it is that we are. Mm, I absolutely love that. What it feels like to work around here. And to you, Keith, the same question. I think that's really interesting, Vivian, because I completely agree with you. And I think the thing when you start thinking about technology in relation to this is that technology is actually just a tool that allows you to analyse diversity or to understand diversity and to foster inclusion. So digital employee experience won't work unless it is completely uh, inclusive and makes people feel Uh, involved, having the arms wrapped around them, particularly in a post-COVID world. But it's also, we tend to concentrate on knowledge workers, on people that are in the office. But actually, if you're going to be really inclusive and really get the bang for your buck, then you have to go beyond that as well into what's loosely termed blue-collar workers. So I think 
the interesting thing about technology in this space is how you can use it to to foster those feelings and that means actually turning the way that you normally do it upside down mm, technology to foster those feelings i love that so in a nutshell if we can um perhaps think about inclusion about creating a work environment where everyone feels welcome and accepted and we know that cognitively diverse teams solve problems faster we know that diverse boards produce higher earnings per share and higher returns and i've always been really fascinated by the relationship between inclusion and performance all humans have four emotional needs and perhaps the most fundamental is our need for acceptance and belonging. And to your point, Vivian, around behaviours, the behaviours I'm going to witness in an inclusive organisation or team are things like respect, appreciation, being humble and being authentic. So let's return to the question, why does inclusion matter to the future ready organization? And the simple answer really is the context has changed. We're moving away from traditional competitive advantage or competitive threat models towards more collaborative business models where data rules supreme. And no longer called companies, these platform businesses have a completely different approach to decision making where it's all about speed and agility. So Vivian, my next question to you, what does this shift from compete to collaborate mean in relation to inclusion? And why do you think that legacy corporates are struggling to make this transition? Thank you, Catherine. And I think you're right when you say legacy corporates are struggling to make this transition. It is a change, it's a change of approach. Um, I reflect on my own experience. I'm a qualified lawyer and started work, of course, in private practice um, and was uh, looking forward to partnership. Um, but the structure in private practice and traditional law firms is very much a pyramid. And I decided to make a move and go uh, in-house, which is more collaborative and a flatter construct. Um, but interestingly, in financial services, it too is a pyramid and has traditionally been one. And it's a highly competitive environment. When you get all these professionals together, it is extremely competitive. So I think if we look at you know, what is the driver, it's always to be or to get to the top of the pyramid and to be at the top means that you're there alone. Mm. And that is really counterintuitive to the whole concept of inclusion and collaboration and belonging. We sort of had this forward-looking, pointy-edged approach to the structure of our organization and then also how we have compensated as well. So, you know, in order to, to get the financial rewards, you have to be at the top because that's where they sit. The motivating factor is all about PL. Um, in order to ensure that you have the largest PL, actually there's no benefit to collaborate unless it flows back through to your PL. So I think the way in which we've structured our organizations traditionally has been pyramidical and it has also been supported by a financial structure that encourages not a collaborative and inclusive approach, but one where actually you accrue power, knowledge and revenue into your particular area, as the case may be. And of course, everything's now turned on its head in terms of the pandemic. And 
I think the other elements of it that's really important is that with more women and more senior roles in these organizations, there is a call for a different approach as well, because the current approach for many legacy corporates isn't one that is attractive. And that's why they're struggling to attract talent, particularly female talent. Yes. I think you're talking here about this move, perhaps from hierarchies to networks and something I read recently about radical flatness. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think one of the interesting things about when you look at the four emotional needs, those are all very engaged criteria. And that is, if you think about the platform approach to business as well, it's about sharing. And particularly with the younger generations coming through, they all want to have opportunities. And you you can't do that in a pyramidical structure. You can't not everyone get, can get a piece of a pie, so to speak, in a pyramidical structure. A flatter structure is actually going to enable that broader engagement and job satisfaction. Mm, yes, the sharing economy, of course. Keith, do you have any thoughts on that? What I was thinking when Vivian was speaking just then, actually, is, and it's going to take quite a leap to get to there, actually, is the difference. Well, there are two things. Uh, The second thing was the difference um, in the way that people are now moving uh, from a technology perspective to um, ingesting knowledge. Now, what do I mean by that? What we've done typically in the past, and it really didn't work during the pandemic, was you'd maybe, from a technology perspective, you would set something up in the same way that you would uh, for a customer in that you would have um, lots of frequently asked questions or something like that. But of course, that takes forever to get through. And so what you've moved to now is a much more collaborative approach where people are sharing knowledge. And in fact, there's a new Microsoft Viva, which has just come out recently, which is all about surfacing knowledge to people at the moment when they need it. And it's also about people being able to contribute. So the whole thing becomes much more collaborative, whereas before, It was the other way up. It was top down. Now it's become bottom up or more specifically, it has become flat. So I think it's quite interesting the way that we're moving from a technology perspective to something that's much more collaborative. The problem that we've had, of course, and this is the second thing, the problem that we've had during the pandemic, which you and I both know, Catherine, because we're involved in something that tried to fix it, is how do you actually have those collaborations when you're sitting in a in a room rather than going into an office? And there are lots of things going on at the moment that people are pushing to try and find ways of actually bringing those collaborations around as well. It's kind of away from diversity inclusion, but the inclusion thing of not being able to go into an office is really quite critical for a lot of people. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. I'm interested in um, thinking about how data specifically can be used to drive more inclusive decision-making, particularly, as you've just said, Keith, in the context of the pandemic, Uh, when you've got people, um, you know, working from home and obviously you have less opportunities for people to sort of physically collaborate, if you like. So how can data be used to drive more inclusive decision making? Well, the first thing to say about data is that if you can count it, then you can measure it and therefore you can control it. Um, So if you've got data, 
then as long as you understand it and as long as you have the political will, you can then make decisions. My old boss, Peter Newhouse, who was the head of reward at Unilever, he and I used to do these uh, sessions at HR conferences. And he had this great line that would absolutely floor people, which is, there is no business case for pay, which, if you think about it, is absolutely true. If I give 10% more money to the population, will I get 10% more in return? But if I actually then start applying data to that and look at the diversity of my workforce, and I discover that a particular subset of the workforce it doesn't really matter what that is as long as I have the data that can say this group of people if you look at it are not getting such a good deal then you can then steer that and make them actually feel uh, more part of things by equaling them up by making it be unnecessary for people to fight but actually look at people and say we are going to be inclusive of everyone so if you've got the data you can then make the decisions if you don't have the data then all you have is opinions yes yes i like that and actually reflecting on that in relation to emotional intelligence reality testing is um, a really a really important part of decision making the ability to step back in a way and be objective um, and obviously data gives you that objectivity. Hmm. So what does all of that mean in, re in relation to taking a data-driven approach to inclusion? It means that, it, for me anyway, it means that if you have the political will and you have the data, not that supports your beliefs, but that shows you the reality, then you have actionable insights that you can bring to bear that can actually allow or start to foster inclusion. So if you know that a particular group are not getting such a good deal for whatever reason, the problem you've got, of course, is that there are certain data things that we do not capture. Mm. And I think it'd be quite interesting to hear Vivian's thought on the privacy of data and how that works, because there are certain things that we don't capture unless we specifically set out to do it, which I think is a kind of a negative thing that the organizations um, are maybe struggling with because they're not able to collect some of the data or they don't feel comfortable collecting some of the data. It's an interesting point, isn't it? I think often we think that data is, I dare I say it and gender this, king or queen. Um, and the reality is, is data is what we have and we don't always have all the data or unbiased data. I think the real benefit from my perspective in terms of the data is that it can put the discussion onto a different footing. Very often we approach a challenge by making assumptions. But if you've got the data, you can de-emotionalize and perhaps dispel some of those assumptions. So the assumption was that um, many jobs just couldn't be performed remotely because that's what we wanted to believe. It was too inconvenient to believe otherwise. Honestly, you know, there's so many things that couldn't possibly be performed remotely. But as a result of the pandemic, we've been able to demonstrate that the most interesting and extraordinary jobs, the jobs that were regulated and mandated to be done in person have had to be done remotely. And now we have the data and the evidence to prove that. So I think the data piece of it is absolutely critical to 
understanding and having an objective approach to the solution process of the problems that we're looking to tackle. Um, I don't know if you want to go into the, the privacy elements now or later, Catherine, happy to pick those up, but I think that is also a really interesting element in how we struggle with what we can and what we can't collect in data and how that might actually impact our ability to be effective in all the ways in which we are hoping to. Mm, no, very interested to hear about those data privacy issues, uh, Vivian, if you can tell us a little bit more about that. Absolutely. So in the DNI space, we're seeing a greater reliance on data. One of the challenges we have, of course, is that um, a lot of the protected characteristics are regarded as being sensitive personal data, which means you can't collect them unless you have the explicit consent of the individual. Um, so we're talking about race, sexuality, disability, and so on. Usually not gender. Gender is usually not regarded as being sensitive in that way. Um, and the other dimension, of course, is that characteristics that are legal to collect in some jurisdictions, even if they come with additional um, hurdles to overcome, are actually illegal characteristics in mm. some jurisdictions. So there are some jurisdictions where it is illegal uh, to be homosexual. Um, and so that creates a real challenge for organizations you know, how do you collect data or encourage staff to be open about their sexuality where actually that could create um, a legal issue for them and for yourself as well. Um, I think from a UK government perspective, they've been very pragmatic in the legislation on how to address that. And at the end of the day, if you volunteer the information, um, then you can collect it. But there's two elements to it. I think privacy is there to safeguard the information, which is important but it can also create a real barrier to how we collect the data from people. But the other element of it in terms of the privacy piece is also a cultural one, which is overcoming people's desire or inclinations to share. Do they actually trust that the data will be used for the right purposes um, and in an appropriate way to achieve the results that we're actually looking to achieve? I think there's a legal challenge in terms of how and if you can collect the data, but then also culturally, whether people feel comfortable with sharing the data um, and are confident that it'll actually be used positively rather than negatively um, in relation to their particular characteristics. So I think there's a lot to overcome there, but if we're going to make a difference, then we need to be able to find a route through where trust is a very big part of it and that people feel safe and comfortable with sharing all of their characteristics on the understanding that actually it's data for good. The intention is good and it's to address imbalances in our workplace and in our society in order to make a difference. But I think it's something that we're still very much working through and different, different countries are at, at different levels. Mm, very, very interesting. I mean, what's really clear, what's come across really clearly in this discussion so far is that actually at a systemic level, organisations um, do have, um, you know, belief systems, they have assumptions and beliefs that perhaps are, have to date stopped them from necessarily being as inclusive as they have wanted to be. And actually the opportunity that data affords 
is um, some way towards moving them closer to being more inclusive. But I'm also wondering about the kind of human side of this in terms of the language of business, because one of the things that I've really seen change a lot over the last sort of three to five years is that the language of business is changing. We are using words like compassion and empathy and equity uh, more and more and more. Um, and I'm just really interested to think about inclusive communications as a way to bridge that gap from where we are now to where we want to be in terms of inclusive communities. So um, Keith, perhaps this one for you, when designing employee experiences at work, when thinking about employee journey mapping, what does it mean to meet employees where they actually are? This is such a great question. And it's kind of at the core of what I, try to achieve when I'm working with people so thank you for asking it let's actually talk about the physical side of it for the moment or the actual practical side of what people have to do and where we've actually moved to so there's been a lot of talk particularly over the last two or three years um, started really um, by Stanford University of design thinking and the difference between design thinking and kind of traditional design is that it starts with the customer or the person, the employee, rather than starting with the process. So you don't necessarily throw the process out, but you start with that. And the very first stage, there are five stages, I'm working from memory, so I may have got that number wrong, but let's say there are five stages that you go through in design thinking. And the first one is called empathize, which is just such a powerful word that you actually start by finding out what your people feel what they want which is completely different from the way that both IT and HR for instance have historically created processes they've worked out what they need and then people have had to go and learn how to use the systems where we're arriving out now is first of all starting with empathy and finding out what our customers need. It's all about what they need. And there are certain types of customer journeys, employee experience journey maps that are all about how does a person feel at this moment in the journey? Feeling is kind of central to it. Then once you've actually designed an experience, it's not the end of the thing. It's then... Um, producing prototypes and getting feedback because we often hear through our, our lens rather than through, than through the customer's lens. So that's kind of one side of it. It's that process. But the other thing that I love is about the language of this. Um, someone said to me recently that, of course, language is the ultimate personalization. The way that I say something is completely different from the way that someone in India would say the same thing and is then, again, completely different from the way that um, someone in America would say it. And it's, it's kind of embracing that diversity of language. If you start communicating with people or understanding people using their words, not the words that they have to learn, that is a hugely inclusive thing to do. 
Do you know what, Keith? I absolutely love what you're saying. Um, empathy, of course, is one of the key traits of emotional intelligence. And of course, if I experience empathy through the organization, um, either from a leader or from um, other members of my team, um, that immediately is going to start to unlock trust, which is exactly. the point that uh, Vivian was making, the importance of building trust. And again, sort of tying back to uh, Vivian's fantastic um, definition of inclusion at the beginning, it's not just about what we look like, it's what we feel like. Again, your point, the importance of emotion and creating a sense of belonging and acceptance, which of course is about heart, that I am connected to this organization, that I'm engaged with this organization through the heart, humanity, humanizing the organization. But we can really easily undo all of this good work when it comes to um, using technology to create more inclusive teams and cultures. And the one example I can think of is the fact that chatbots um, that I have heard about are being created with female characteristics and personas. Why is this happening? And, and actually, frankly, does it matter? I was going to say, Keith, you're probably far more expert on this than I am, but I suppose it's, it's just a, an observation. Isn't it interesting that when it comes to serving, that it tends to have a female personification? And when it comes to advising, it has a male persona, but when it comes to information and helping and such like, it, it often has a female persona. And I wonder if it, it is just the flow through of our conscious and unconscious biases that a chatbot that is there to, to help comes with a female persona because um, that is accessible, and it fits into the existing assumptions around women being helpers and in those helping roles. That is my gut reaction to it. But Keith, I'm sure you probably know more of the science behind it. But in a <laughs> sense, it would seem a lot more sensible to, no. to have chatbots that are, dare I say, it, gender neutral or male. Yeah. Um, do you know what? You've hit the nail absolutely on the head, Vivian. We're perpetuating the kind of executive female assistant uh, route. I mean, because the one thing that you left out of what chatbots can do is all the repetitive, boring stuff. Um, and I just had a vision of trying to count how many male office cleaners there are, and I couldn't really think of that many. So, no, I think it is absolutely a perpetuation of um, the way things were done 30, 40 no, 20, 30, 40 years ago, and still are done in certain places. I think the interesting thing is that, um, you know, and I, I've done it myself, I've worked with people um, developing chatbots, and you start talking about them, one starts talking about them as her. And it is just, it's embarrassing, actually. Um, but no, it, it, you're absolutely right. It is a perpetuation of the way that we actually see that structure and it's quite interesting though because um the other thing about it is it's not just the gender it's also how does for instance if you're in a multinational 
how does a Western female voiced, if you wish, or a chatbot with a Western female personality, and it's places within the Middle East as well, where, you know, people aren't even allowed to, women aren't even allowed to drive a car. So how does it work there? How do you actually, in a multinational, how do you have a chatbot which has a personality and has gender? How do you make that work in different countries? And that's the real challenge. And I thought this when you were talking about the problems of asking personal questions in certain countries. I was thinking of certain African countries um, about homosexuality, for instance. And what does tend to happen with technology, even now, in certain multinationals is that it just becomes a kind of a blanket where everything is tarred with the same brush but of course it's not there is great diversity of different types of cultures in different parts of an organization and that's a real challenge to pick up on. So when thinking about strategies for inclusion in relation to gender let's just focus on gender what can organizations do to close the gap between perception and reality Vivian to you first well I think the data piece is so important to this and as we've discussed what we also have to be conscious of is where we're getting the data from is it selective data um, is it equal data, i.e. equally reflective of um, the experiences in the different jurisdictions where we're operating and so on? So, you know, the data is so important because it de-emotionalizes and it provides a, an objective baseline, but very rarely is it fully complete and it, and it comes with all sorts of assumptions as well. I thought I'd just mention uh, the missing middle. So the missing middle is that term used about the female talent pipeline between the ages of, sort of 28 to 40. There's a, a lot of focus, particularly in the financial services sector, on recruiting um, a balanced gender representation at entry and very focused, again, on women in leadership roles, which is really important. But talent seems to be hemorrhaging in that middle pace. And without a strong talent pipeline, it's very difficult to achieve your objectives at the top end. And so one of the things we set about with Women in Banking and Finance was to look at the missing middle. Um, and if you ask people, you know, why do you think there is a missing middle? Well, the first thing they'll say is, well, women are obviously at their prime childbearing age. And, and that's why they're leaving is to raise families. So we did a survey um, of men and women uh, to ask about the talent pipeline. And the fascinating thing that came back was that women, particularly women with children, far outstripped all other women and men when it came to ambition with regard to their careers. And that is a data point. And with that understanding, it completely turns on its head the assumptions which we immediately um, come with about, well, female ambition must be lacking during that critical time period because you know, the biology of the female body insists that that is prime reproducing time. Um, but actually the data will dispel that myth and say actually, you know what, women are incredibly ambitious, particularly if they have children, what they lack is opportunity. So I think we need to collect the data, be cognizant of the um, limitations that it comes with, but it can help us to overcome our assumptions and perceptions and bring us closer to the realities of the challenges that we're facing so that we can actually address them and make a difference. And you know, some of the recommendations that we've been making at WIBF is you know, don't assume that because a woman has children that she's not up for 
the overseas role or the really challenging assignment, et cetera, actually women are really looking for the opportunities to realize their ambition. Um, and in the same way that you don't make assumptions about men with children, please don't make those same assumptions about women with children. I think it's really interesting when you then start taking that data and plugging it through artificial intelligence as a training set. If you think about using artificial intelligence to find candidates, to source candidates, uh, or to select uh, potential long lists through CVs, you have to provide training data for that artificial intelligence to learn what it needs to be looking for. And if you have what is essentially a kind of male middle-aged white anglo-saxon protestant organization and you use that as your training data for the artificial intelligence then it will give you male middle-aged white anglo-saxon protestant candidates to put forward far more interesting to look at the groups that you have learnt need to be included and use adjust or use the data so that the artificial intelligence is looking for what you want it to be, what you want the future organization to look like, rather than what the current organization looks like. I think it's a really powerful comment that you made, Keith. And what I really draw on there as well is what we want to look like is diverse and inclusive. What we want to look like is multifaceted. Um, and I know, Catherine, that we had touched on um, in previous conversations, you know, the concept of a gender neutral organization. And is that something that we should be aiming for or that may emerge in the future? And, you know, my reflections are on that. That sounds very much like a one size fits all. And runs counterintuitive to what we mean by inclusion and diverse, which is actually the rich fabric of society reflected in our organization. Not necessarily that you always have to find people like you, but even if you're the only one of you, that actually you feel part of the team. Yes. I'm different, I'm unique but actually I belong. I don't have to look and feel like others. I can be myself, whatever that is, and is absolutely unique. And I think we have to be careful not to have that synonymous or one size fits all objective for organizations where there is a, you're all equal and it's all the same. We're all equal, but we'll never be the same. And, and that's actually the beauty of it. That's the key to the inclusion element is not trying to make people the same, but to make them included so that they can bring all that rich color and fabric to the organization so that we can benefit from what they can bring that's utterly unique. I absolutely love what you have both said and Vivian, particularly what you've just said about this idea of freedom, this idea of fulfillment, um, actually what Maslow calls self-actualization and bringing that together with a sense of belonging um, is really, I think, at the heart of human connection. 
and organizations that are able to give every human being the opportunity to reach their potential, to um, allow them to uh, nurture the self-actualization and create a sense of belonging, those organizations, I believe, are going to win. On that note, I wanted to thank you both very, very much for being our guests today. Thank you to Keith and thank you to Vivian. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it far and wide. And we are very much looking forward to having you back here for our next episode of Brilliance Realized. And that's a wrap.